everything negative, pressure, challenges are all an opportunity for me to rise. Kobe Bryant said that, and I'm saying this. Welcome to High and Low. Good day and good night. Welcome to the High and Low Basketball Show. This is episode number 100 and Muscala, a.k.a. episode number 157. 57 is a jersey number worn by St. Louis Park's favorite son and Boston Celtics forward Mike Muscala. Who the hell is that? I use the term Boston Celtics forward loosely because Muscala is barely touching the floor during these playoffs. Uh, And if Jimmy Butler and the Heat continue to defy odds, uh, Muscala won't get any time anytime soon um anyway drafted out of bucknell in the second round by the mavs in 2013 the 10-year vet has been a presence on several nba teams including the aforementioned mavs the hawks sixers the lakers the thunder the journeyman status is confirmed here (laughs) through most of his career mike muscala's worn the number 31 and he's worn the number 33 but both numbers uh, have been retired in Boston. So he decided to go with 57. And why go with the number 57? Well, this is the year that his mother was born uh, and she just passed away before the season. Uh, so it's a meaningful number to Mike Muscala. Did you hear that? Anyway, welcome to the high and low NBA experience this week. My name is Ike Amechi. Around here, we live by a principle governed by the high and low lives of the world, which means we talk about basketball especially and specifically the NBA. And we talk about it at any time, anywhere, north, south, east, west, high and low. This week on the show, I'm going to talk about the worst teams in NBA playoff history, the worst. And uh, one of those teams might surprise you. I'm also going to jump on Love Hate Island real quick, just to talk about a couple of things happening in the NBA right now. Spoiler alert. It has nothing to do with John Moran's gun collection or his friend's obsession with going live on Instagram. (laughs) Stay tuned for all of that. Uh, I just want to thank you for joining me for another installment of the program. I really appreciate your time this week. Another week, another episode, more NBA, some more high and low. This week in NBA history, it came down to 24 seconds. On May 25th, 1992, the basketball world mourned the loss of a true innovator and game changer. Danny Biasone, who passed away in Syracuse at the age of 83. Uh, While his name may not be as familiar as the star players who've graced the hardwood, uh, his impact on the sport is immeasurable. Biasone, a passionate basketball enthusiast and owner of the Syracuse Nationals, he played a pivotal role in revolutionizing the game by introducing the 24-second shot clock to the NBA uh, for the 1954-1955 NBA season. The introduction of the shot clock was a, a response to a problem that plagued the game at the time. That slow-paced and low-scoring contests, uh, they were becoming all too common in the NBA as teams utilized stalling tactics to maintain their leads, uh, and recognizing the need for a change that would inject pace and excitement into the game. Biasone set out to find a solution, which is what great leaders do. So drawing upon his knowledge and astute observation, Biasone arrived at the magic number of 24, 24 seconds. His method was simple yet ingenious. He divided the total playing time of 2,880 seconds by the approximate number of shots 
he estimated two teams took in the the game, which was around 120. By implementing a 24-second shot clock, he ensured that teams had a limited amount of time to take a shot, thus preventing excessive stalling and encouraging a more fast-paced and dynamic style of play, which we still enjoy to this day. Uh, The impact of the shot clock on the game was immediate. It was profound. Uh, Scoring increased significantly. It transformed the NBA into a high-scoring spectacle. It's the same spectacle that we see in the game today. The the shot clock injected a a sense of urgency. You know, it forced teams to make quick decisions uh, and engage in continuous action, you know, constant movement. It revolutionized the way the game was played. This captivated fans with its uh, thrilling displays of, of athleticism and skill. Yes, athleticism and skill. That's 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 what the NBA is all about. Uh, Danny Biasone's visionary contribution to the sport of basketball cannot be overstated. I, I must say this. You know, his introduction of the shot clock, not only did it revitalize the game, but it also set a precedent for future innovations and changes that were aimed at improving the overall experience for players and fans alike. You know, I think it's safe to say that the 24-second shot clock and the three-point line have been the most innovative changes in NBA history. I wonder if people will embrace a four-point line or four-point shot in a similar way. Not to say that's going to happen. Don't quote me, but we could be going in that direction. Anyway, that's a little something for the NBA history nerds. Things are certainly happening in the NBA today, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about something important. I usually have listener questions in the mailbag and uh, ready to address at this point in the show. However, I think I'll hold on to the questions until next week when um, I'm joined by the others. Forgive me for othering. Um, But yeah, I'm going to be joined by the mandem uh, next week. Uh, So instead of hoarding all the fun for myself, we'll hold off and instead we'll uh, take a trip to Love Hate Island this week because these are the playoffs and uh, there are so many things in the playoffs to love but uh, there are a few things to hate a few things but yeah again so many things to love starting with starting with the playoffs overall so let me just say my condolences to fans in phoenix milwaukee and philly uh, you were truly victimized by the nba playoff chaos theory we have an eight seed in the Eastern Conference Finals and a seven seed in the West. Uh, and they're not looking like underdogs. They look like they belong. Lakers and Heat uh, look like contenders. Nothing Cinderella about either team, but the unpredictability of the playoffs have definitely had their casualties. So I'll leave it at that. With that said, uh, what I am loving right now are the Western Conference Finals, Nuggets versus Lakers. There are a couple things happening, and it's all beautiful. Uh, we can all agree that Joel Embiid's MVP crowning was a bit of a surprise. It was it, it was an upset, if you will. Despite Nikola Jokic having a textbook MVP-like season, and I use the term textbook, but there was really nothing textbook about it. This was this was more than an MVP-like season. Um, but he was inextricably passed over for what would have been his third straight MVP. But the league's fascination with narrative over substance, well, it's just snatched that honor straight out of the hands of, of the Joker. 
And it's comedically ironic that one of the voters who did not even have Jokic in his top five, Mark Jackson, well, he has to call these games in this series, a series that puts Jokic and his brilliance front and center, and it allows all haters and naysayers to see him cook, forcing them to see what they ignored or refused to see all season long. And you can't change the channel, can't switch over to another game. This is all that's playing right now. And in Mark Jackson's case, uh, you worked the game you were told to work. Hmm. Uh, to a lesser extent, same could be said about Jamal Murray. Jamal freaking Murray. When he's peaking, when he's flambeing the defense, like what he did in the bubble, Denver can't be beat. Or at least it's very difficult to beat them. The Lakers found out the hard way in game two. Uh, and this series gives everyone this uninterrupted, unobstructed view of Jamal Murray, Jamal freaking Murray, Bubble Murray, if you will, and Michael Porter Jr., MPJ. It's funny. Very funny. Uh, both Murray and MPJ are the Nuggets' most gifted scorers. Now, Jokic is the best player on that team. He's the point guard. Well, he's their point center. And it's crazy to say that out loud, but he is. He facilitates the action better than anyone in the league. And when Murray and MPJ are clicking and operating in peak form around Jokic, again, Denver, hard to beat. Hard to beat. Um, But I love watching it. All right, you guys, what's next? So I just want to move over to the other side of Love Hate Island just for a moment. Let me talk about something that's getting on my nerves. Actually, scratch that. It's been on my nerves. But we're, we're at a tipping point now. See, I understand the need to review plays to ensure that the calls are accurate, especially at crucial moments in the game. You know, coaches will be strategic because if they ask for a review of a play and lose, there goes that timeout, which, which you need sometimes. So, so you'll often see it utilized in, in the fourth quarter, you're right? Close game where the value of a possession is amplified tenfold. What I can't stand, what I hate is players blowing a layup, absolutely selling, swearing they got fouled, and they look straight over to the bench. Like immediately look at the coaches and the bench, spinning their finger in the air, asking their coach to review the, the play at a moment that makes like no sense. You know, like two minutes into the second quarter and they're asking, can you review the play? And it's now become a part of that cycle of crying and complaining we see in the game night in, night out, because, of course, no call is, is ever correct and players are always right. I'm being sarcastic, by the way. Let the coaches coach and players just play. Don't shut up and dribble. I'm just saying. Just let the players play. The players just need to focus on playing. Let your, let your coaches handle all that stuff. But please stop spinning your finger every single time you, you, you think you got fouled. You know, sometimes you got to give the refs. The benefit of the doubt. Anyway, I don't like it. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, one more thing uh, while I'm on this side of the island. Perhaps I missed the memo. But uh, when did we start celebrating the number one pick at the draft lottery? So we have French phenom Victor Wembanyama, a kid that some are calling the greatest prospect in NBA history. The greatest prospect I mean, the kid's seven foot five. He can run the floor. He can shoot. He can dribble. He can play defense. He can block. He's the perfect build. 
and he's been projected to go number one in the draft since, I don't know, since he was in the womb. Teams have been tanking for this kid, for his rights, for that number one pick for the last two, three years. So San Antonio won the lottery. We know that. And then we immediately get shots of Wembenyama and his family celebrating San Antonio getting that number one pick like they were at the NBA draft. He was asked how it feels to go to San Antonio. Like right after he was asked how it feels to go to San Antonio. <laughs> and we're reading about how people are feeling about Wembenyama as a spur. Now I get it. I get it. He's a lock. He's a lock for that number one spot. But <laughs> shouldn't the Spurs draft a kid before we get into all of this? It's weird. And it doesn't make any sense to me. It's literally the same as counting your chicks before the eggs have hatched. But that's just me. That's just me. Okay. All right. I'm done. I'm done. I'm getting off the island. Um, just want to give you a quick reminder. This is to all the high and low lives. If you want to leave a question for us to answer on the show, drop us a DM on TikTok at more high and low. You can also drop a DM on Instagram at get high and low at get high and low. Uh, links are in the show notes. Time for us to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the worst NBA playoff teams in history, in league history, the worst. We'll be right back with more High and Low. This moment is brought to you by High and Low listeners. This week on the High and Low NBA show, listeners were asked to share their top five players to watch in the postseason. Elton in Corpus Christi, Texas, shared his opinions starting with number five, LeBron James of the Lakers of Los Angeles. Number four is the Denver Nuggets' Jamal, the Fleury, Murray. Number three is Jason Tatum of the Celtics. Number two is the Joker, Nikola Jokic. And Elton's top player to watch during the 2023 NBA playoffs is Jimmy Butler aka Himmy Butler. Thank you for sharing your list, Elton. Much appreciated. Let's get back to the program. Welcome back to the High and Low NBA show. I'm Ike Amechi. Picture this. The world of basketball, where triumph and defeat dance together in a chaotic tango. Uh, in this realm of hoop dreams. Love that movie. Hoop dreams and broken ankles. Uh, there exists a peculiar phenomenon. A paradoxical tale of the worst playoff teams in NBA history. It sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> Gather around. Gather around as we dive into these comical chronicles of these two teams where surprising journeys collided with inevitable collapses. I want to start our adventure with the 1953 Baltimore Bullets. Now, these folks had a regular season record that would make even the most loyal fan cringe with a measly 16 wins and a ballooned 54 losses. They weren't exactly the darlings of the court yet somehow. Somehow, they slipped through the cracks of mediocrity and waltzed their way into the NBA playoffs in 1953. It was a feat that defied logic, left pundits scratching their heads and opponents just chuckling under their breath. Led by a 5'10 guard by the name of Fred Scolari and their coach, Claire B. Who the hell is that? Uh, the Bullets fancied themselves as underdogs with a touch of moxie. Let me just use a word from the era. A touch of moxie. And then defied the odds, earning their ticket 
to the playoffs. The experts and analysts were, were pretty much dumbfounded. How, how could a team with such a ridiculous record find themselves among the elite of the NBA, which is what the NBA playoffs were? Well, the answer lay in the peculiar playoff system of the time. Now, during that era, the NBA had a division-based playoff format, which meant that the top four teams from each division secured a playoff spot, uh, regardless of their overall record. In 1953, there were only two divisions, an Eastern division and a Western division, five teams per division. Now, for the Bullets, they were in the Western division, which was considered the weaker division in the league due to the fact that it was home to the Bullets and the Philadelphia Warriors, who managed to finish below the Bullets in the standings. Embarrassing. Uh, The Milwaukee Hawks finished with 11 more wins than the Bullets and missed the playoffs because they were in the Eastern division. Tragic. Good God, that's going too far. Uh, So despite the comedy of errors leading to Baltimore's inclusion in the 1953 NBA playoffs, the Bullets had the audacity to believe that their subpar record was just a facade, a clever ruse to to lure their unsuspecting playoff opponents into a false sense of security. Uh, With boundless optimism and a healthy dose of delusion, which I think is what you need in those situations, they stepped onto the hardwood ready to show the world that miracles do happen, though usually only in the movies. In a twist that would make even the most seasoned soap opera writer envious, the Bullets found themselves in a showdown with the mighty New York Knicks. Now, the Knicks were no pushovers, armed with the likes of uh, Harry Gallatin and Max Zlovsky. They were ready to feast on the Bullets' dreams like a hungry lion devouring its prey, but the Bullets weren't about to go down without a fight. A fight that was destined to be comically futile. (laughs) Uh, Against all odds, the Bullets pushed the the series to a decisive second game, which is another way of saying they got swept in two games. See, in this playoff format, the first round was the best of three series. (laughs) Neither game was close. Uh, It was a classic case of David versus Goliath, except David came to the fight, forgot his slingshot, and Goliath uh, was sporting a bemused grin ready to uh, go in for the kill. And just like that, (laughs) uh, I'm going to mix my metaphors here. Uh, Their Cinderella story was torn to shreds. The glass slipper shattered into a thousand pieces. Um, Yeah, rough. Anyway, bad playoff team. The worst. We're going to take a break, though. When we come back, I'm going to talk about the next worst NBA playoff team in history. We'll be right back with more High and Low. All right, you guys, what's next? This is High and Low, and I'm Mike Amici. So the Baltimore Bullets truly were one of the worst teams in NBA playoff history. Uh, The worst, in fact. But the Chicago Bulls, despite being one of the worst from a statistical standpoint, they had their reasons but they are on this list. We're going to talk about them. Let's fast forward to 1986. Well, fast forward from 1953 to 1986. And uh, we find ourselves in Chicago, the Windy City, uh, home of the Chicago Bulls, led by the legend, the GOAT, Michael Jordan, in his second season. These Bulls had their fair share of struggles during the regular season uh, with a forgettable record of 30 wins and 52 losses. They were about as threatening as an Austin Reeves zero step. Yeah, I said it. Bulls started off strong. They won their first three games of the season, 
But then Jordan went down with a broken foot in that third game. A huge blow, huge blow for Chicago's front office who were looking forward to a promising season with the additions of Charles Oakley, John Paxson, and an aging but still effective legend in George Gervin. Uh, so with Jordan sidelined for most of the season, the Bulls would go 21-43, and then they just crawl to the end of the season with Jordan back in the lineup, of course, with a 6-9 record. Six wins, nine losses to end the season. But lo and behold, the basketball gods seem to have a twisted sense of humor. Uh, the Bulls, despite their mediocrity, they sauntered their way into the playoffs. Uh, it was as if the basketball universe wanted to see just how far this ragtag team could go with their burgeoning superstar, knowing full well that their journey would be riddled with irony and heartbreak. Um, or maybe it was just the fact that the Central Division featured three of the worst teams in the league. Uh, the Bulls finished one game ahead of a terrible 29-win Cleveland Cavaliers and a 26-win Pacers squad. And remember, the top two teams from each division had automatic berths to the postseason. In the East, four teams from the Atlantic and four teams from the Central Division clinched playoff spots, while all six teams in the Midwest Division in the Western Conference went to the playoffs, leaving only two of the six teams from the Pacific Division represented in the league's second season. I know, I was speechless too. So there were teams that were in the Pacific Division that didn't get into the playoffs that had a better record than the Bulls in the East. But anyway, back to the Bulls. In a clash of the present and the future, the Bulls faced off against the almighty Boston Celtics, the best team in the league. Now, with the likes of Larry Bird, Larry the legend leading the charge, the, the Celtics were a force to be reckoned with. Uh, the Bulls, armed with a youthful Jordan and a hefty dose of hope, well, they braced themselves for an uphill battle. Emphasis on the uphill. Now, in a twist that would make Shakespeare giggle with glee, imagine Shakespeare giggling, uh, the Bulls fought tooth and nail against the Celtics. Jordan showcased his otherworldly talents, defied gravity as he does. Uh, he left his defenders scratching their heads in disbelief, and he set a playoff scoring record in game two with 63 points, and he averaged 43.7 points per game in the series. But alas, alas, even the most incredible individual efforts couldn't save the Bulls from their inevitable fate, uh, a first-round exit, a clean sweep, and a one-way ticket home as uh, Boston would go on to win the title. Well, they'd go on to the next series en route to winning the title. Uh, the series proved to be an important step, though, a lesson in learning. Bulletin board material, if you will. And it was all for his Ernest, who would uh, lead the Bulls back to the postseason in every season, every season in, in their dynastic years, uh, which were soon to come. And so we bid farewell to the tales of uh, the 1953 Baltimore Bullets and the 1986 Chicago Bulls, two teams who danced with destiny only to stumble at the grand finale. Uh, their journeys were filled with irony and audacity. Uh, and they remind us that uh, in the unpredictable world of basketball, especially the playoffs, even the worst can, can dream of greatness. And we're seeing that today. You got a seven seed and an eight seed who some people had written off early, but you dream of greatness and you never know what happens. But, you know, sometimes greatness may be too busy sipping margaritas on a tropical island. Why the f I can't shoot three point shots? That brings us to the end 
of this episode of High and Low. Thank you for joining me. Subscribe to High and Low anywhere you find podcasts and make us a part of your weekly routine. If you want to leave a review and a rating, I'm not going to say you should, but I know I know I would. Anyway, you know where to find us. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube. Links to those are all in the show notes just to make it easy for you to find. Once again, the music is by live of the Enjoy Music Group. You can find live on Twitter and on Instagram at L-Y-V-E. Additional music is by Sonny Rockwell of The Goodness. You can't find that guy anywhere. Sound design is by Vaughn August. This is a Vaughn Abraham podcast, just in case you didn't know. So, on behalf of the residents of Love Hate Island, I'm Ike Amechi. Thank you for listening to High and Low, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.